For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. Dan Willingham, a cognitive and neuroscience expert and author, joins me to talk about the reading brain, reading research, and how educators navigate messages about what reading instruction should include. Dan has been a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia since 1992, and his research has focused on the brain basis of learning and memory and applications of cognitive psychology in K through 16 education. His most recent book, The Reading Mind, A Cognitive Approach to Understanding How the Mind Reads, covers every aspect of reading. Well, welcome Dan Willingham. So excited to have you on the episode today. Delighted to be here. And I always start by asking our guests to describe how they ended up interested in or thinking about early literacy. And maybe you could talk about how it relates to your broader work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I did not start in early literacy. And I would say um, uh, if anyone listening has any familiarity with my work, you know that um, I'm very much a generalist. Um, and a generalist really beyond education. So I, I uh, starting really at the beginning, I uh, began my training as a cognitive psychologist and a neuroscientist um, and worked in that field for the first 10 years of my professional career. Um, I was a college professor in a department of psychology and just doing basic work, uh, basic research in the brain basis of memory and got interested in education largely by accident in the early 2000s um, and started sort of from my home base in memory and attention and uh, turned um, trying to turn cognitive psychology towards the classroom. What is it that psychologists know about the mind that um, teachers might find useful? I got interested in early literacy sort of as a natural outgrowth of that as my um, uh, my 
what's the right way to put it? My sort of uh, research interests uh, and and applied interests became more focused in my own mind of of trying to bring whatever psychologists knew about how children learn to the field of education. Literacy was obviously an enormous part of that, uh, but I uh, was did not have a deep background in the psychology of reading. Uh, so we're now in the year maybe 2015 or so. So I spent uh, about a year and a half, two years, really immersing myself in that literature, and I, you know, I knew some of it. I had some familiarity with it, as uh, you can't you can't avoid that if you're teaching a course like Introduction to Cognitive Psychology. You need to know something about language. You need to know something about reading. Uh, but I spent much more time uh, diving into that and um, ended up writing a book called The Reading Brain uh, to for that purpose. Um, and so that, yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. It was, it really was sort of, uh, it, it was not the starting point for me. And it, it just became obvious to me that this is um, a subject of, of urgent concern. That was something that ought to have been something I was interested in and working <laughs> on. So I, I took it on. Was there a particular situation or something that you remember that you're like, wow, no, I really need to understand and dig into this more? Or was it just sort of a general leaning? I think it was, I think it was a general leaning. And it was also conversations um, with educators, because when I would, uh, you know, tell them the kinds of things that I was interested in, they would always bring up reading. And it did not matter whether I was talking with a preschool teacher, or early elementary through high school. Um, reading is central to uh, virtually every educator's uh, concerns. And so it seemed like something that um, uh, I ought to know more about. And I was hopeful that psychologists would have something to say that was useful to educators. Yeah. Well, you certainly you certainly do, and you certainly have had something useful. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned that book, The Reading Brain, because it it it's it's really uh, illuminating um, to hear it from your point of view. Um, and I think also really super accessible. And I think, you know, it's one of the things for sure we'll link our listeners to in the show notes, but um, it brought a, it just brought a new realization, I think, into, you know, this is a, is this is an important topic, an important thing that we need to get right, and we haven't gotten it right quite yet. And and to be clear, I mean the 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 book and my my more general stance is that is um, is very much of a psychologist who's describing what happens in the mind as someone is reading. It's not really about instruction, but it does have fairly obvious implications for what the some of the goals for instruction probably need to be. And I, I, the, the syntax of that sentence was fairly convoluted. And it's probably <laughs> because I'm trying to be really careful in how I talk about this because it's easy to get confused. So one, I mean, one starting point when you're thinking about reading, um, you know, reading is really, when, when we think about teaching children to read, I think it's really important to remember there are different goals that one can set for kids as readers. And those will have different uh, implications for what instruction ought to look like. And this is something I think we, we don't talk about enough, and maybe you and I can explore it a, a little more deeply. But I bring it up because 
um, because the reading mind, you know, was sort of agnostic as mostly as agnostic as to what your reading goals might be. And this is sort of the characteristic of basic science. You're not talking about how the world ought to be. You're just trying to describe the world as it is. And so the reading mind is just saying, okay, here's what when someone is reading, someone who already knows how to read, here are the mental processes that are recruited, here's how they work, here's the role of knowledge and the role of vision and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's, that's quite different than how you, uh, a book about how you get kids to that point. And again, it, it obviously has implications because it's, it's showing you what uh, kind of the complete package is. And so you have a little better sense of what you're shooting for. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it relates a little bit to your recent blog, which we'll get to in just a minute. Um, but because you, you know, you found yourself ingrained in this world of reading science and learning more about it, what's your, you know, I'd be really interested in your point of view on how you view the, the current science of reading momentum essentially like the conversation has has started it's gotten polarized in some way people are misrepresenting it people are representing it appropriately what's you know what's your take on all this what's been beneficial and and maybe some challenges that have surfaced um i think it, it maybe i'll start with the challenges actually the the challenges for someone who's um been involved in education for a while uh, the challenges are that wow, this feels really familiar. Like, have we not <laughs> yeah. have we not gotten any farther uh, than this? And and as you say, there. Uh, and for anyone who's, I, I expect most of the people listening know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. For uh, the the few of you who may not, um, this debate about that focuses mostly on a small set of the. Um, uh, aspects of teaching of reading, namely sort of beginning readers and teaching them to make sense of print, uh, going from letters on the page to words in the mind, not even talking about sort of deeper aspects of comprehension or anything that comes before that, but really that process. That's been the focus of the debate and the, the role in particular of teaching um, grapheme phoneme correspondences and how central that is, how systematic it needs to be. That's what people seem to really love to argue about. And that argument's been going on since the 1920s. So that's what's, uh, sort of makes you sad and exhausted reading Twitter is, uh, is that, that, that's what the, the debate continues yeah. to be about. Now, the, the, the aspect of this that I'm uh, more encouraged about is that it's taken a slightly different um, uh, cast, the argument this time, because a lot of what people are fighting about is what are teachers actually doing? Because there's, I think, more agreement about what is ideal, and there's the question is whether or not that's actually happening. So... Um, the, the, as you noted, there's a lot of misrepresentation on both sides. And so uh, one side says phonics advocates want kids to do nothing except worksheets. And if the kids are miserable doing them, that's maybe even a little bit better, according to the phonics ad, right? Yeah. Um, and then the, 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 on the other side, the people who do advocate for systematic phonics mischaracterize the uh, balanced literacy people 
by saying all those balanced literacy people want is for kids to sit on pillows and, and drink hot chocolate all day and look at picture books. And that to them is reading. I think we've gotten past that. And we uh, both sides recognize there is value in high quality children's literature. There's value in read alouds. There's value in a literacy block that includes time every day for children to speak and for children to listen and for children to do some writing. Um, and then the, the question, and, and both sides will say uh, there is a role for phonics instruction. So the big question, now the point of contention is, um, what should phonics instruction look like? How much time should be devoted to it? And the phonics advocates are saying, probably not enough time and probably not very high quality instruction is what's happening. Whereas the balanced literacy folks are saying, that's not the problem. The phonics component is fine. So this is a long prologue into why I'm slightly more encouraged, because what's bubbling to the surface is, oh, we really need to find out what's actually happening in classrooms. And as a researcher, this is something that has been of enormous frustration to me as long as I've been in education, is we have terrible data on this. Um, and it's, of course, a... a, a huge problem. There are 14,000 districts in, um, in the United States. So characterizing even at a district level, here's how they try to teach kids to read is, is, is terribly challenging. Uh, but we've, we've just completely given up on that. But, and and you, you, you just can't move forward if you give up on that. That's the problem. Uh, because if you say, well, we need to make things better, uh, then you're contemplating a change. Well, if you don't even know what you're doing now, how do you know what ought to change? Hmm. So I'll, I'll leave it there. That, that's, uh, I think, the, the, uh, the most encouraging thing you can say about the current debate. Yeah. Just as an extension of that, I would just love to hear, so you mentioned something about we really don't have any research on what's happening in the classroom uh, itself. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, it, to really do that research right is extremely expensive and difficult. So I don't, I don't want to underestimate that. The easy way to do it is to ask teachers, hey, how do you, how do you teach reading? Um, that's not a great way to, uh, to address the question. Uh, the reason is that this is going to be retrospective. So you're, you're counting on people's memory. And we know that memory is mm -hmm. fallible. Uh, and you also have the potential that you're you're dealing with uh, what what um, psychologists call self presentation issues. That here you are with this interviewer, and sure. you know I, I I of course want to look like I'm doing a good job as a teacher. So I may think a little bit less about exactly what actually happens in my classroom and more about what during my professional development session or during my education courses. Uh, I, I was told the ideal is supposed to look like. Um, so the real way you want to do this is have an observer sitting in the class uh, recording what happens. And by recording, I don't mean like videotaping. I mean like, you know, with a clipboard and they're sort of coding what's happening. Um, okay, now they're doing a literacy block and it's a read aloud, that kind of thing. Um, so you can see why that would be so expensive to have a trained person spend uh, you know, half a day or a day in a classroom um, and, and to have enough people doing that so that you get something that's really nationally representative, that's extraordinarily expensive. 
Um, there, there were studies of that sort where you had observers in at different grades between 600 and 1,000 classrooms. Um, that's close to 20 years ago now that we, uh, to my knowledge, we have data of that sort. Hmm. And so what you're getting at a little bit, I think, kind of relates to a, a recent blog that you wrote that I'd love to dig in and explore a little bit. Um, and this was, you know, essentially, okay, you we need to get, if you're going to write about the science of reading, I think this is, was the title, you need to get your science right. Mm -hmm. um, and you made a distinction between this idea of basic science and then applied science. Um, first of all, can you just talk a little bit about what the motivation was to write that? And then maybe we can explore some of the contents of that blog. It, well, the motivation was, you know, that uh, exactly the motivation I try not to let the get get the best of me, which was I was, you know, frankly irritated. Uh, you know, I read this report and I thought it was really, I thought it was really confused. I thought it um, made some points that were interesting observations, but it also made some uh, points that I thought were uh, in error. Um, uh, the one that, that really prompted it was um, the uh, comment that we'll, we don't really know enough. This is not a direct quotation, needless to say. This is from memory. This is sort of the gist of it was, uh, you know, the science of reading is really complicated, and people are pretending that we know enough about the science of reading to draw any firm conclusions, but that's not really, that's not really accurate. Um, and I thought that was um, far too negative, uh, regarding our, our state of knowledge. So that's what that's what prompted me to write it. And and then when I read the report a little more closely, uh, this is uh, just so people were, I don't think we've named it. This was from we the have Nas not, no. Yeah, this is from the National Education Policy Center uh, report that came out. And the blog was in late March and that was I wrote the blog a week or two after they they published this. Um so, yeah, and I thought a, a significant part of the problem was a confusion of basic science where I think um, the science of reading, again, this was you know what I wrote a book about, the, the reading mind is the basic science of reading, describing what we know about how people read um, and, and applied science. And a lot of the recommendations in the report, I thought, really had nothing to do with basic science. They, they really concerned, they were more concerned with uh, the National Education Policy Center's uh, priorities regarding uh, how teachers would be treated, uh, how to think about reading and the goals of reading and, and other things that really science can't help with at all. And there's just no reason to to bring up science in that context. Mm. And so it goes back to an early earlier comment you made about um, or we talked about misunderstandings and conflating of ideas and sort of the confusion that emerges as we try to sort of dig into what this looks like in the classroom. That's right. And this is this has been an, an, an ongoing interest for me is is trying to think very carefully about the relationship of basic science and applied science. And, I, and, and education to me is clearly an applied science. Um, and it's uh, a, a field in which basic science can contribute and applied science can contribute, uh, but it's still only going to be a, a fraction of uh, of what's what really matters in classrooms. 
And so the, the analogy I've drawn is to architecture. Frequently, the anal- people draw an analogy to medicine. They have mm-hmm. basic science going, and then physicians sort of drawn basic science and, and are coming up with new treatments and new medicines and so forth. I think the analogy is, is really misleading, though, uh, because of the way we think of medicine. And actually, physicians tell me, Dan, you're thinking about medicine the wrong way. And I'm like, I, in a way, I don't care because I think the analogy still... <laughs> The analogy, you know, I believe you, and I'm in no position to challenge it, but the analogy is, I think other people agree with me that this is the way they think about it, namely that um, medicine is sort of, um, uh, science is sort of determinative when it comes to medicine, that if, if science figures out the right way to treat disease X is with procedure Y or medicine Z, then you better use Y or Z. That's mm-hmm. the best available one. And otherwise, you know, you're sort of guilty of malpractice. Um, and this is what my friends say. Eh, it's not really like that. It's more complicated. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's probably more, definitely more like that than education is. In other words, um, education is clearly not going to be the case that once science figures out, you know, a, a certain number of things about mathematics, you had better teach mathematics in this way prescribed by science, or you're going to be guilty of malpractice with your kids. I think a much better analogy is architecture. In architecture, you really should know some basic science. You need to understand some basic principles of physics. You need to know some materials science so that you'll know whether this design you're concocting, whether it's going to stand and whether it will um, uh, you know, hold the load of people coming into the building or whatever it is. Uh, but it, science doesn't tell you anything about what the building should look like. It's just a little fragment of the concerns that come in uh, when you're designing a building. Uh, and just as uh, we, get, we come back to the, the issue of goals again, you, you think about um, designing a building, there are all sorts of, uh, th- there's not one supreme set of goals. Yeah, probably that it should stand and shouldn't collapse on people with loss of life. But beyond that, you're thinking about what the budget is. You're thinking about the aesthetics of what you want the building to look like. You're thinking about the function of the building. And all of that, that part of the analogy, I think, translates quite well to education. You've got uh, s- uh, bits and pieces of knowledge about how children learn. Uh, and that's important. You know, you have to account for that. That's like physics and materials science. But that's just one little piece of the puzzle. And then there's enormous variation in, in what teachers can do uh, in capitalizing on what we know. And part of uh, their concerns also is, is going to be what our goals are for our children. Hmm. And that makes sense. So um, in other words, uh, much of what we're talking about is the context in which we are attempting to function, um, which can change from place to place. Absolutely. Context is is uh, one part of it. And, and maybe you meant um, goals as well as part yeah. of context. And I yeah, would, yeah. I would include that, but yeah. And I, and I didn't talk about con- uh, other aspects of context. Um, but, but that's obviously enormously important too. What sort of, um, what are the, what are the home lives of most of the children that you're teaching? Um, what sort of support are you or lack of support are you getting from the administration, from the school board? What's yeah. the physical, um, the physical plant that you're operating in, all of those things matter. Yeah, that makes sense. And as a, as a former teacher, I can resonate with that. And I think 
those that are listeners too that are in the classroom right now can resonate with that. It's sort of the questions that they try to ask, well, what, but what does this mean for me when I either have this situation or don't have this thing, right? So yeah. it's really hard to take a general idea and make it actionable in a variety of contexts. It is, and 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 that's yeah, and I think that's exactly that's exactly the reason is that there it's very seldom that there's going to be an idea that is actionable, um, where we can guarantee. And this is this is why it's not prescriptive. It's not just about the goals. I said that, but what I said was really too limited. And and thank you for sort of that elaboration. The the contextual piece really matters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll offer one other way in which I think basic science is really important, and this is something I've written about in the last couple of years, is the idea that everybody has a set of beliefs about what kids are like. They they uh, feel like they understand how kids learn. They feel like they understand um, what kids' emotional lives are like, what uh, what motivates them, and so on. And you have to have that because... Uh, the education that you undergo in order to become a teacher can't prepare you for everything. Um, I love to tell this story of a friend of mine, his, his daughter became a teacher, and uh, I happened to see, run into her after she'd been in the classroom for a couple of months. And I said, so, you know, how, how's it going? And she said, well, no one told me what to do about spinners. And she didn't mean fidget spinners. She meant kids. And she, she's a second grade teacher. And she's like, she had a couple of kids who at unpredictable times of day would get up and go, you know, find a, a blank space in the, on the floor and just start spinning. And so, so every, this is a beautiful example of like, yeah, you know, you were probably absent that day in the seminar when they talked about here's the, you know, the scientifically proven uh, strategy for helping kids who are spinners. So you're going to have unpredictable things and uh, that happen. And in that moment, how she responded to that spinner obviously was influenced by her beliefs about what kids are like and what this child in particular might respond to. Sure. So I think what basic science can contribute is they can, I, I sort of call that that mental image of what kids are like, a mental model of the learner. You have ideas mm-hmm. of, obviously every child differs in different ways, but there are some core beliefs you have that, you know, most kids are kind of like this until proven otherwise. Just, you know, we think about that with every object. Most dogs are friendly unless you give me some reason to believe otherwise. And likewise, you have, you know, sets of beliefs about what second graders are sort of generally like. Um, and what science can do is help you think about that, I, I hope, more deeply and more richly and then uh, sort of help shape that mental model of a learner in a way that is um, uh, going to be more true to your experience. So it's, it's a great example of what you were just saying before. It's like this is not going to be actionable in any obvious way. Like science tells you, this is what kids are like, and therefore you are going to do this. But instead, it, it gives you um, this sort of background knowledge of what kids are, or at least contributes to this background knowledge of what kids are like. Um, and you'll be drawing on that in, in uh, small ways in, in many situations. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to make a connection with that back to what you said about, let's go back to the architect and, and that sort of um, metaphor that we were mm-hmm. we were talking through. So if I'm an architect and I know that I have to um, take into consideration some laws of physics as I'm doing some design, if we extend that to the classroom and let's just pretend it's the K through two classroom, right? And I'm a first grade teacher. And as I'm working in the context and creating this structure or environment for early reading instruction, the assumption there then is that teachers should have had the understanding of basic science of the, that reading process, right? Right. Yeah, and so I think some of the conversation now is, well, many, many of us, I will include myself in that, and many people that are in the classrooms right now aren't getting that or have never had that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and again, this is this is what, what I think has been the most fruitful part of the conversation is just asking that question, well, wait a minute, what exactly? So when you become certified to teach, what exactly do you learn? Um, a friend of mine was certified to teach fifth grade in New York City, and he said, my certification called for absolutely no knowledge in re- of, of reading instruction. <laughs> I didn't take a single course in reading instruction. He said, and I taught fifth grade. I could have been teaching first or second graders. I wasn't, but I had, you know, that my certification yeah. covered that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a, I think this is a very um, useful conversation for us to have. Yeah. So that I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue because right now it's, well, what science, if I'm going to learn what science should I go back to be reading and studying up on and who in the world can I trust? Because one person says one thing and somebody else says something else. And you actually wrote an entire book about when can, it's called, when can you trust the experts? Yes. Yeah. I think my mother read that book. (laughs) (laughs) It's been my, it's been my goal since it's been on my shelf to like highlight this book to everybody I know, because it's a really important topic about how you can actually tell if this is decent science and should I trust it or not? So what was your motivation to to author that book? Yeah, so uh, um, my motivation was this, the idea for this book really came from teachers I I was talking with. This book came out in 2012. And um, that was not that long after I got really serious about education and sort of turned away from basic research and mm-hmm. turned all my attention to education. And as a result, I was talking to a lot of teachers and I continually heard from them this frustration. They felt like science or more broadly research was used as a cudgel to get them to do things. Yeah. <laughs> so they would, you know, they would be in a professional development meeting or, or most often, uh, you know, uh, and forgive me, uh, my administrator friends, most often it would be like an assistant superintendent or an assistant principal who would ha- get on a hobby horse. They would get really excited about something and they would try and get all teachers in a school or all teachers in a district to enact some, you know, uh, some strategy in the classroom. And experienced teachers are like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want to do this. And this is when the phrase, all the research supports it, would be 
uh, evoked. And teachers had this overwhelming sense, like, I just, I smell a rat like that. I just don't <laughs> believe the research. That doesn't seem right to me. But they also, you know, knew, A, I'm not really a researcher. And, and, well, really, A is I don't have time to, like, go and dig up the research. Yeah. Uh, but B, if I did, I'm not a researcher. I'm not sure it would make that much sense to me. So I, I had this idea to write a book that would um, sort of be a cheat. It would be a way of evaluating the likelihood that something was really research-based um, without reading all of the research. And I'm very upfront about the, the fact that, you know, it is, it is a shortcut. And, and it's, um, uh, for that reason, it may well be unreliable. Um, and, but yeah, I, I, I thought it would be, I thought it would be of interest to, uh, to teachers because they were so frustrated by this, uh, all the research shows it, uh, phrase they were hearing all the time. So in thinking, well, by the way, it was very, it's been very helpful to me. So if, if I'm your only fan on this book. Oh, God there. bless you. That's great. No, I already told you my mother liked it. Oh, bless her heart. Um, so as you're thinking back on this book now, in what ways do you still think this is relevant? Oh, I think it's absolutely relevant. Um, I think it's, um, you know, because we we have all the same problems. I mean, one one of the uh, the, the, the same problem that I described, which is that you've got practitioners who do not know where to turn to get reliable information about research. So the way, the way I framed it in the book, and I, and I still think, I absolutely think this is relevant. This is, I, I think, unique to education. The problem is not unique to education, but most other fields have solved it. So the problem is, you're a practitioner, you go to school to learn your, your practice, you uh, are, are um, educated in what are presumably the most up-to-date methods, and then you're in practice, and research is marching on, and what you learned in school may become outdated. How are you supposed to know whether or not that happens? Well, if you're in medicine or accounting or dentistry, you, uh, you have the same problem, um, and the way those fields have dealt with that problem is they've created institutions that make sure that practitioners have access to reliable summaries of research, mm -hmm. usually annually. Um, and so the institution will, either the institution itself will hire or they will oversee the production of um, these annual summaries. So they're very well known in medicine. Um, and I've forgotten now the name, but there's one series in particular published by Little Brown that is is uh, really renowned. And, and it comes out in a sort of a spiral-bound uh, volume each year. And there's one for internal medicine and one for surgery and so on. And basically someone with a lot of expertise has spent the year digging into the literature and deciding, is the way we treat strep throat still the best way? Or is there does the weight of evidence now indicate we should... Um, do something else. So it relieves practitioners of uh, the job of keeping up with the field and education um, leaves teachers to fend for themselves on this score. Um, and there, you know, there's some notion that, well, you know, that this is part of being a professional. It's not. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to think you can be in practice all day and then go home and start right. reading journal articles, for God's yeah. sakes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's an unreasonable expectation. Uh, so it, it seems to me the, the obvious 
candidates for this would be professional organizations. Uh, the teachers unions have ex expressed very little interest in this sort of work. The AFT has done some of it. The NEA, to my knowledge, has done next to none. Uh, but they're, they've traditionally been much more interested in uh, you know, work operating as labor organizations and, mm -hmm. and their concerns are more working conditions and salaries and that sort of thing. Yeah. Other yeah. professional organizations could take it on. So National Council of Teacher, uh, uh, teacher Teachers of Mathematics, uh, those are smaller professional groups. Um, they have not, they've not taken it up either. But that's that's the problem as I see it. And so until that to me is the ideal solution. Um, and until then, everyone should just buy my book. They don't have to read it. <laughs> It's, it's okay to just buy it and, and, and not read it, um, but they, they really should buy it. <laughs> well, yeah, that makes me laugh because I just got this vision in my head of buying a book and putting it under your pillow and, you know, hoping that you wake up the next morning and it's just in your brain. But You know, um, osmosis is, you know, you never know. That could happen. <laughs> Sleep osmosis. It's not been tried enough, I think. Uh, but it is very true. I mean, I remember as a teacher that you can't even, you can't even get access to the articles unless you know you have access you, you pay to get access to the articles so yeah. um just even to get access to research articles is one thing to be able to actually engage with them and read them is another thing um and so and, it is and, frustrating and bear in mind i mean it's it's how ludicrous this idea is the that teachers should keep up because of the um, diversity of fields that you would want to keep up on even you know set aside if you're a second grade teacher so that there's math and English language arts and science and all the rest of it if you're right. you know a high school social studies teacher you're trying to keep up with all the high school social studies stuff but then you're also trying to keep up with literature on motivation and what's happening in emotion and what's happening yeah. in sleep in the sleep literature right. you know it's just everything touches education um, so it's, you know, it's, it's an impossible job. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a turn here, um, because the hot topic these days is actually all about remote learning. Mm -hmm. Um, given that we're in the school closure environment, unclear what's going to happen and back to school. So, um, what do you think we should be keeping in mind as you know, as educators, we're trying to teach remotely, either with technology or we're having to put together packets. So, you know, kids are still doing stuff at home. Um, yeah. What are what are the big big takeaways there for us? So uh, I I want to be big clear. That's a question, I'm, by the way. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I, and uh, and I'm I want to be clear. I'm uh, I'm very much shooting from the hip here. I mean, this is and and I think. Almost, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine anyone who, um, except possibly a historian, you know, you you don't want to write off school indefinitely, but you have to figure out some way of making remote learning work. And as, as we've seen, that's that's enormously challenging. Yeah, and and I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking about again the early early learners learning to read our k1 and 2 kids compared to maybe middle or high schoolers so those missed learning opportunities are going to be very different between between grades they they may be um, but the it, it may also i mean it, 
if if I if I heard you right, it sounded like you were suggesting that well, the older kids can kind of learn on their own because they're able to read. Is that what you were suggesting? Well, I'm more suggesting that maybe remote learning is easier to deliver to kids that are in middle or in high school that don't need maybe some explicit instruction in the code knowledge or in phonics. Maybe that's a lot harder to do remotely. It could be. I mean, I think that. Um... I would not have, ca- and again, I'm totally shooting from the hip here, so this this may be really naive. I mean, but I think the 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 greater challenge with the younger age is that they're uh, they're younger and they're just not used to being on task for as long a time. They need um, uh, the teacher needs to be there to monitor how it's going and to you know change direction as they drift away. Whereas the older you get, the more sort of self-regulated you are and the longer you can stick with a task that's set for you. Um, in terms of kind of needing explicit instruction and, and needing feedback, there's some tasks that we could think of at, in high school where you've got exactly the same problem, that the ideal is that the, the instructor is sort of right there on the spot as you're doing something providing immediate feedback so that as you take a non-optimal path, you can, it can be pointed out to you, oh, well, here's why, here's another way of thinking about that or, you know, whatever the the feedback might be. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you today. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm wondering if you can mention for our listeners um, ways that they can follow your work. Oh, sure. Um, Well, danielwillingham.com is my website, and that has anything uh, that I've written to which I own the copyright, uh, you can download there. Um, And then on Twitter and on Facebook, I'm DT Willingham, uh, and I post both places fairly frequently. Great. Well, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure, and best to you. Ah, thank you so much. Uh, had a lot of fun. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book, or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.